Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions you may have about your practice and your life, your application of the Buddhist teaching. So if you have questions, you can post them in the chat at any time. We spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation. It's a way to bring our minds to the present, to prepare ourselves to think about and take in the teaching of the Buddha. So post your questions at any time, and for the first 15 minutes, we'll just have silent meditation. A chance also for our volunteers to collect the questions. And I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin to answer.
All right, that's 15 minutes, so we're back. At this point, we'd ask that the only thing that be posted in chat are questions. And if you have a question, just post it. If you don't have a question, just close your eyes, be mindful. And we'll spend the next 45 minutes talking about Buddhism. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Is it enough for cultivating awareness to know you're breathing in and out? Well, there's a few things here. I mean, cultivating awareness doesn't sound all that impressive. So, I mean... The word awareness is a bit ambiguous, but it's not something you need to cultivate because uh, we're aware a lot of the times. Uh, if you talk about specific awareness, like, for example, being aware that uh, all formations are impermanent, right? That's an awareness that we're not normally aware of. So for cultivating that, um, for most people, simply knowing you're breathing in and out isn't going to be all that effective. Um, I mean, especially the way, the, the way you phrase it, and the way you phrase it is a clue, in fact. The problem with just knowing you're breathing in and out is it doesn't cut through the sense that it's you breathing in and out, which is, of course, a problem, because that's not accurate. That's delusion, which is our, ordin our ordinary state is deluded. We, we have a sense of self, that it's me breathing, that sort of thing. And just knowing that you're breathing in and out isn't going to get rid of that. There's no reason to expect that it would. So I don't know if you've uh, read our booklet on how to meditate. I would recommend uh, checking that out. It's a little more concrete as far as the steps it takes to purifying your awareness and creating clarity that allows you to see the three characteristics. How can you help a partner or family member who's depressed but doesn't want to meditate? Other than being a good example for them, is there anything you can do other than being mindful? Yeah, no, unfortunately, you are your own refuge, and people have to uh, do their work themselves. Uh, for close family members, there's sent, there seems to be a sort of a pull or, or a potential for a pull where your purity pulls them towards greater purity. I mean, it's, it works just like if someone goes down a bad path, they often drag other people with them. And the same goes with bettering yourself. If you become a better person, the people who are closest to you well, they either become less close because of their inability to relate or harmonize with your new self, or else they become more like you, so they become more inclined towards meditation. It tends to be a sort of a division there as you change. If you have some sort of radical change in meditation, or mindfulness tends to be a fairly radical change, there tends to be that sort of a, um, a split where some people become closer and others drift away. Uh, but is there anything else you can do? I mean, besides just being honest with them, and a part of being honest is the honesty that meditation would help them. So rather than trying to pull them yourself, which doesn't seem doesn't usually do any good whatsoever, um, just laying it out and being blunt and honest, and any time they complain, you can remind them that there is a option open for them that really would help them. The more honest you are when you're honest and you give people the opportunity to, to cultivate initiative themselves instead of forcing it upon them, which takes the agency away from them. If you give them the agency and let them make the decision, that tends to be um, more fruitful.
I am a lay person and do not wish to be enlightened. However, I do wish for a more peaceful life and rebirth. Should I focus on cultivating the Brahma-viharas, jhanas, rather than dry insight noting? So not wanting to be enlightened is a bad idea. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's wrong. It's a delusion. And so your um, aversion towards that is what you should be focusing on. I mean, that's going to be a cause for real suffering and danger to you. It's going to be a danger to your future rebirth. It's, it leads to the potential for pain and suffering in your future rebirth. If you want a more peaceful life and more peaceful rebirth, then there's, of course, no better way than to see clearly. Basically, what you're saying is you don't want to remove the delusion and the wrong views and the uh, misperceptions, the corruptions of the mind that are the only thing that would ever cause you to have lack of peace, to have conflict and disharmony and suffering in your life. And the more of them, the worse and the more dangerous that becomes. So the Brahma-viharas will give you some temporary relief, but that's temporary. So suppose you did practice them and you did have a peaceful life and rebirth and then when that was over, Buddhism is gone. There's not even any Brahma-viharas taught. All there is is conflict and, and suffering in the world. And there's no direction, no Buddha to guide people in the right way. And there you are without ever having uh, learned anything from the Buddha's teaching in terms of actually gaining clarity of mind. And, uh, well, you're up the creek without a paddle. So yeah, not a really good idea, to tell you the truth. I mean, the way you phrase it, dry insight noting, sounds like you're kind of, uh, maybe have a, a negative uh, perspective on the practice that we do. That's not how I would categorize what we do. What we practice is vipassana, which means seeing clearly. And the way to see clearly is through the practice of what we call sat, of sati, what we call mindfulness. And that involves a mantra, which is just a way of reminding you and focusing your attention on an object. And when you focus your attention, you start to learn more about it. So if you focus your attention on a conceptual object, that would lead to tranquility. But when we focus our attention on momentary experiences that are constantly changing, then it doesn't lead to tranquility. Instead, it leads to seeing clearly the three characteristics which uh, are real and reality. It's not optional where you can either see it like this or like that. It's seeing what really is the truth. And the two options are to be ignorant and cling to things as stable and satisfying control and controllable when they're not, or to see that they're not and to let go of them and to live independent. And if you can live independent, you'll find much greater peace and happiness in this life and the next, of course. When doing samatha meditation, are we missing out on the information that we get when practicing satipatthana vipassana? Is it important to know the types of experiences that we note, or only to see the three characteristics? It's only important to see the three characteristics, but that is what you're missing out when you practice samatha meditation. You won't get the clarity of the three characteristics that you would get from practicing satipatthana vipassana. Samatha meditation, that's because samatha meditation takes a concept as an object. It's a, a mental creation that then is stable or appears to be stable, satisfying, and controllable. That's how it's perceived. The control is what's important in samatha, the stability. Is it normal if by meditation you lose the appreciation and judgment of abstract concepts like love, compassion, honor, etc.? Or am I doing something wrong? Or is it some mental disorder? Well, no, I mean, well, love anyway. Love is, um, well, ambiguous. But when you pair it with compassion, it makes me think of what we call friendliness. 
which might be called love. I mean, that might be the best use of the word love would be friendliness or like this kind, friendly state. Um, so ab- they're not abstract concepts. They're states of mind. They're qualities of mind. Like compassion is the inclination to try and alleviate the suffering of others. Honor, honor is a bit abstract, I suppose, but still relates to um, straightforwardness, re- moral rectitude, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, by meditation, you do learn, or you do lose some uh, capacity to to cling to, well, to hold on to these, uh, hold on to abstract concepts. Not maybe not the ones that you mentioned, but you tend to be more in tune with actual experience. So you're 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 more in tune with the truth of an exp- of, of a of a situation. It's a situation with with another person, the harm that you cause to them, the harm that they cause to you. It's more clear to you, and so there's a greater propensity and and um, capacity, for love for compassion and honor. All of these things are. I would say not abstract. They're they're much more related to one's ability to see clearly and see the suffering that comes from the opposite, from hatred and cruelty and dishonor. During my daily meditation practice, I experience a lot of nihilism in daily life. Is this a result of being young, as I'm just 23, or should I do something different? Well, I don't quite know what the word nihilism means. I mean, I've I've had this sort of question before, actually, or this sort of comment where people talk about this, and it's never quite clear to me what they mean by nihilism. I, I guess I'm not clear on the Western usage of the term. Um, but but regardless, it's not important because it's just that's just a, a word, right? And it's just a concept. The question is, what are you actually experiencing? Because no, you don't experience nihilism. You experience something that you uh, label, you call nihilism. So what are you actually experiencing? And it's usually some form of disliking, or it can be fear, it can be depression, it can be sadness, it can also be liking or attachment, you know, desire. You can have desire for nihil for 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 nothingness for for non-existence that sort of thing. So the question is, what are you actually experiencing? It's got to be some sort of actual experience. You don't experience nihilism. You experience seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. Here, it's probably a lot of thinking, and uh, maybe some mental activity like uh, I don't know. There can be nothing. There can be a, a feeling of emptiness or or. or that sort of thing, but then there's also the yearning for being more full, so you see the emptiness as something negative, that sort of thing. And just actually practice mindfulness and try to focus on the actual experiences, you'll be able to break it up. It's important not to put these sorts of labels, or these sort of abstract labels on things. Try and actually appreciate the moments and what, what you're experiencing in this moment and this moment and this moment. That's what you should be doing. I don't know if you've read our booklet or if you're uh, doing the at-home course, you might consider taking up the at-home course. We've got lots of empty slots. I am addicted to TikTok and music reels, and I keep scrolling all day. I am addicted to the point where I neglected my meditation practice for days. How can I stop this addiction and start being mindful? Well, sometimes you have to overcome the uh, the aversion to meditate. So there's a sense of you prefer to do something else, and it can discourage you and make you you make you feel discouraged. Like um, meditation would be something unpleasant to do, and it usually actually isn't if you can actually convince yourself to do the meditation, um, you'll find that the actual practice itself is quite liberating, of course, right? It's just the problem with meditation is it's not addictive like uh, these things you mentioned. 
So uh, we depend on addiction to tell us what to do, and you have to kind of change that. You have to remind yourself that you know meditation actually is is something wonderful, and when I do it, I learn so learn things about myself, and I become a better person, and that's the reason why I should do it. And there's lots of lots of um, support that you need to really progress. You need other people practicing. You need a community. You need contact with a teacher. So it's hard doing it on your own, but hard isn't a isn't the same as impossible. And you should just try to recognize it's going to be hard. Not be discouraged when you don't practice, but um, make make the effort to actually practice. Life's not going to last forever, and of course, these things that you're addicted to are not creating satisfaction. So find a way to make time. Some people have schedules. That's really good if you practice at a specific time during the day. Set aside a specific time and make a point to do it, just like exercising. Uh, But it's hard. We recommend people to try and uh, find a community. So we have this mentorship program that we're trying to meet once a month to encourage and to, to work together to encourage each other in ways of setting up a community in your in your region, in your area, or maybe join a community that already exists in your area, that sort of thing. can really help to keep you on track. It's not intentional, but is it bad karma if I bike or run, etc., since bugs end up dying? I sometimes see them a split second before unintentionally trampling them. Would it be better to do it indoors? No, I mean, the the, the life of bugs is very short, and it's not something you have to really be concerned with. What you should be concerned with is your intentions, your, 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 your intent of mind your inclination of mind. We're not concerned with the dying of beings. There's countless beings dying every moment, and insects uh, among the most of them. They're just always dying and being reborn, and that sort of, you know, again and again. It's, it's not really a big deal. It's not something to be sad about that beings die. What you should be concerned with is your, your intentions. I mean, doing things like biking and running um, I guess if you're doing it for exercise, that's a, a valid reason as a lay person. Um, yeah, maybe doing it inside would, would be more peaceful, but it's not something you really have to worry about. Try and appreciate that death of beings, your death, the death of every being, is it's not really that impactful. It's only the present moment and your your state of mind, your quality of mind that's important. So try and focus on that. Thoughts are karmically potent. Our mental formations on concepts studying nature, such as quantum physics, neuroscience, unwholesome? Does this create attachment, ignorance, or delusion necessarily? Thoughts are not karmically potent. I don't know whatever gave you that idea. Um, so, um, studying nature, such as quantum physics, neuroscience, they don't. Well, the first thing is that it's not just that they create. They they don't create, or it doesn't create attachment, ignorance, and delusion. But it generally comes from those things. The only reason why you would study those things um, is out of delusion, because it wouldn't be something that an enlightened person would study, or them having no interest in it, or no reason to do so. So it would be because of those things that you study those things. Um, that, and that being said, as you continue to study them, because they are not related to the path, the there is a potential for you to cultivate and grow more attachment ignorance and delusion as you're studying those things but it's not the thoughts themselves or the studying itself that causes those things 
It's uh, it's your own habits of mind and your own inclination and your own potential, what we call anusaya, which is the potential that you have to cultivate these things, the inclination, the, the proclivity. How does one not get depressed by seeing the three characteristics? Besides noting depressed, can you have a conceptual framework? So you get depressed because you don't see the three characteristics. That's the whole thing. We, we, we get depressed because of not getting what we want, thinking that there's something that is stable, satisfying, and controllable. There's absolutely no relationship to being depressed in the three characteristics. Now, I mean, that being said, if you intellectually um, contemplate the three characteristics, that can make you depressed. But why it makes you depressed is because what you want and what you are looking for and what you are heading uh, uh, seeking out is something that is stable, satisfying, and controllable. So it depresses you that you can't get that. Yeah. And through seeing the three characteristics, we're realizing that, oh yeah, these things that I thought I could get that would be stable, satisfying, and controllable are not that. And when you do that, then that changes that. There's, there's no potential for depression because there's no expectation. The thing is that um, being independent, being free from dependency on things that you expect to satisfy you is, is a different kind of happiness and peace but I mean, it's, it's a it's real happiness, real peace I struggle to tell my husband that he needs to work around the house and children he doesn't want to do that and we end up fighting how can I avoid this vicious cycle? Yeah, um, marriage and the, um, the husband problem that mothers are often saddled, mothers and wives are often saddled with the lion's share of housework, which is underappreciated and underrecognized trivialized, brushed off, and ignored. And there's this thing called weaponized incompetence where the husband will often, or the man, or let's say the husband, will often um, feign an inability or a lack of capacity to do housework. An incompetence that is that they can use to as an excuse not to have to do it. So those sorts of things. Yeah, this is, I mean, not really a Buddhist question. It's more of a an issue that feminism tries to to deal with. But, um, I, I mean, I see the the good in, in feminism as a Buddhist, and I can point out the similarities in terms of appreciating the negativity, the, the unwholesomeness of that. I mean, this is laziness. It's... Um, um, wrong wrong views and wrong perspectives it's it's stinginess it's miserliness it's cruelty but a lot of laziness i think um so what can you do to deal with someone who um, isn't able to be kind and be caring and be helpful. Hmm. I mean, the, no, normally it would be well. You, you try and be a good example for them, right? And you you try to uh, do your best and focus on who you are. The problem is you're dealing with um, ingrained views and beliefs because society and and cultures often 
most cultures, most societies uh, reinforce and and allow for this um, unequal division of labor and allow for an overburdening of one spouse over the other. So you're going to deal, from a Buddhist perspective, that's the point, is you're dealing with culture and views, and those can be hard to deal with. I mean, besides living on your own, finding a way to live alone, that's the sort of Buddhist thing to do. Marriage should be a partnership. I mean, it's okay to have different labors. Suppose one person goes and works um, in the world, like the, the traditional family of a husband who works and a wife who stays at home. It's still not always going to be fair because, of course, the the being stuck at home is often unple- can be unpleasant, especially when you're stuck with children. But um, at the very least, there there should be a division of labor where it's clear that neither partner is working more than the other I mean, it's a partnership right um I, I don't know i mean the sorts of things you could do go to marriage counseling help help to change views um this may not sound much like buddhism but i i, I believe that it is no because it's about views and so marriage counselors because of the what i would agree with some of the the new um perspectives on things where people where, where there's awakening there's an awakening to the injustices the the fact that there is a very real um imbalance in in these sorts of things i mean there's lots of societies of course are going to be full of problems it's called um it's called systemic violence i think is the word what is, what is the word there's cultural violence, there's physical violence, and then there's structural, sorry, structural violence. Structural violence that is not, not it's probably the worst, the most underappreciated form of violence because it's invisible. There's no person committing the violence, it's just the structures, the structures of society, you know, racism, sexism, ageism, you know, ableism, lots of these things that are pointed out by by people who are seeking social justice are, are very real. I mean, it's real structural violence and it exists in all societies to varying degrees. And it's something that we should address. Um, so from a Buddhist perspective, I mean, that's not Buddhist perspective. From a Buddhist perspective, this is related to the acts that we have done, the, the cruelty that created these systems, the ignorance, the bigotry that created them um, are now bringing about the the effects and it's much more like a cycle um, where those people who are oppressive uh, in this life will be the oppressed in future lives that goes for all these things people who are cruel and 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 uh, harmful towards others become the harmed so it's it's not that there's an us and them to this it's that we are hurting ourselves by and we're creating snowballing into societies that are uh, unpleasant as a result or or going the other way depending on on the direction i mean i think buddhism has been a force of good in terms of helping people to let go of the greed and the anger and the delusion that they have to see more clearly to be more kind, more friendly, more helpful, more harmonious. I mean, I, I guess if someone is unhelpful, I mean, we're, we're talking about your specific situation, we got to look at the, the different aspects. I mean, on the one hand, it can be the unwholesomeness. Maybe they are just lazy. Maybe they are cruel, and and um, maybe they are bigoted. They think you're the woman; you have to do all the work, or that sort of thing, you know. But it can often, as I said, often just be culture, and then marriage counseling. And before I got off on that tangent, I was talking about how you know marriage counselors. I would think you can find ones that uh, have an understanding of some of these issues around structural violence and how you have to work. 
to change your views. I mean, where your husband may have to work to to appreciate and to even realize that, oh yeah, that also is work and it counts. And making you work 12, 16 hours a day is uh, is unfair. I mean, it's cruel and it's... Um, it's it's uh, something that needs addressing. You know, as a partnership, you have to work together. You're in an unenviable situation where you have children who are hard to take care of, where you have housework and a family. There's a, a lot of work involved. So yeah, something would have to be done. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about that. I mean, of course, I've never been married, but marriage counseling, um, things like that. Find. I mean, sorry. The other thing is communication. You know, sitting down and finding ways to talk to your husband. So getting back to what would be really my forte would be helping you to be more mindful. Not saying that you're not, but if you're more mindful, and the more mindful you are the better you are able to talk to people and to help them see the truth and, and realize that they are causing stress and suffering by their activities or by their inactivities. And it would help you from getting angry. It would also make you more patient. I mean, sometimes you're in a state of servitude where it is unfair and you do do more work than other people, but mindfulness also helps you be patient with that. You don't have to pretend that it's fair but you also don't have to be have to suffer from it you can you can work much more than other people in ways that uh, seem problematic but you lose a sense of fairness you get a sense of reality where this is my reality and in in the end if that's if you can't get through to other people and help them find a more harmonious way to live then Eventually, you drop them and you just work on yourself and you make yourself a better person. So it 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 often feels like this is all, this sort of advice would often be rejected because it feels like you're letting people walk all over you. But you don't ha it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to convince yourself that uh, th there's not a problem, that it's right, that that your situation is right and fair. Right? You don't have to do that. You you can let go of the, any sense of fairness and appreciate that this is your reality, and not be concerned with other people and and maybe feel sorry for them that they're going to hell because of not your husband perhaps but some people who are cruel and evil are even going to hell and and so you feel bad for them and you think well good for me at least I'm going in the right direction and that's important that's the most important is what direction are you going in. So fighting is not the right direction, no matter what, even if people are unfair. And this is a problem that we see in in social justice, is there's a lot of anger, and there's a uh, affirmation of anger, that you should be angry, that angry is good, and it's not. You have to think beyond that, beyond society. It's not us and them. Getting angry doesn't fix society, doesn't make society a better place to live. It maybe gets you on top again or makes things more quote-unquote fair, but it creates the habit of anger. It creates the habit of reactivity. It doesn't help you to grow and become fair, become peaceful. Is it harmful in some way to meditate without first having strong shila and right view? No. No, if anything, those things uh, come as a result of meditation. So it's going to get in the way of your practice, but... I guess what I would say is if you're breaking the five precepts, it's it's sketchy. It's not going to be a very fruitful thing to cultivate mindfulness. But 
on the other hand, mindfulness can help you to keep the precepts. So let's talk about, say, the only one I could think of would be the fifth precept. The, the other four, unless you're like a kleptomaniac or a compulsive liar, I mean, just breaking the precepts isn't really, it doesn't make you an evil person. It's if you're habitually breaking them and you're inclined to break them and you're not trying to keep them. If you slip up and break a precept, that doesn't, that doesn't doom you or prevent you from practicing. So, so when you talk about having strong sila and right view, no, that, that's not expected. You should take the five precepts and commit to training in the five precepts. So trying to keep them. Now for the fifth precept, if someone is an alcoholic, um, you know the problem is with alcoholic, with alcohol and drugs, like um, intoxicating drugs, is that they make it pretty hard, if not impossible, to meditate. But you you should you should only see the only key is understanding that there is no moderation with these things. It's not about being okay that sometimes I kill, sometimes I steal, sometimes I cheat or lie or take drugs and alcohol. It's not okay. So if you slip and you drink and, and you're an alcoholic and you drink alcohol, well, that's okay. You know, Try again. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, they, got, they get a lot of things right, I think. You just try again. You, you start counting from day one again. Uh, that's not a problem. The problem is when you is the you know not having taken the five precepts and saying it's okay. I'll have a drink once a week and and that'll be my Buddhist practice. That's bad. That's that's wrong. You 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 you. I mean, theoretically, you could, but you can't. We do not accept that. If a person is like that, I would not accept them as being Buddhist or practicing buddhist meditation they would i would not teach them meditation i would say no until you can say to yourself I, i'm taking the five precepts and you know I, I will not have a scheduled drink once a week all that sort of thing until they can do that then i wouldn't teach them but i don't think that's strong sila that's just trying right view um, again, it's sort of the same situation where you don't need strong right view. You just need to know, you need to have heard and have learned the theory. Um, basically, the theory of the Four Noble Truths, and you have to appreciate it. That's the sort of thing that you need to start. If you don't know that, or say if you don't know how to practice mindfulness, then of course, sitting down to meditate isn't going to be helpful. Assuming a situation where, due to some bad past actions, someone is in a situation where he is always on the run from authorities or has legal troubles, a lot of anxiety, do you have any advice for meditation? Yeah, well, there's two aspects there. You don't need anxiety because you're on the run from authorities or have legal troubles. Those are two very different things. Uh, being on the run from authorities or having legal troubles, um, I mean, it, it doesn't have any bearing. It shouldn't have any bearing on a Buddhist. So in two senses. First, in terms of making you a bad person, it doesn't actual, actually have any bearing on whether you're a bad person because as you say you could have done some bad things in the past where you actually hurt people let's say and that is bad that is evil but suppose you changed and you realized or suppose the crimes were not harmful suppose you grew marijuana and that's um, we would say evil because it's breaking you know it's it's intoxicating yourself but it's not harmful to others and then you said hey, wait a minute, this is not the way to become enlightened. This is not the way to clarity or freedom from suffering. And so you stopped, but you got you got caught because you know the war on drugs is such a horrible thing and there's just ridiculous crimes against crimes for, for taking and growing drugs. So it, it doesn't 
bother us. It wouldn't bother me if you told if someone came here and said, "Hey, I'm a criminal. I'm on the run." I mean, legally, we might have to look about harboring a known criminal, a wanted fugitive, or something. I suppose that's problematic. But say I was in the jungle somewhere in Sri Lanka. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't care about that. That's not our problem, and it's not a problem. Ongulimala is a good example. Ongulimala was a serial killer. And uh, the king showed up at the Bud- at the monastery where the Buddha was staying. And he said, Venerable Sir, we want our- your blessing. We're going to go try to capture this horrible killer, Ongulimala. And the Buddha said, oh, he's sitting over there. He's a monk now. And so the Buddha was harboring a known criminal, right? But the other way that it has no bearing is that it it shouldn't actually affect you either. Even if you are in danger of being put in prison. Now, this is hard because prison is a horrible place or can be a horrible place, especially depending on where you live. And so it can be a a, a very challenging, let's say, to say the least, even to put it mildly, uh, environment. But it's still just your experience. And it's not that you should be complacent about going to prison. It's that it may be the reality that you do end up in prison. Now, that shouldn't cause you anxiety because the anxiety doesn't make it less likely for you to go to prison. It doesn't help you if you do go to prison. It doesn't make it any better. It's not a good thing. Anxiety will never help you. And you may have to be hyper vigilant so that you're, let's say, not caught and put in prison, that sort of thing. But that doesn't require anxiety. So two different issues, and you should try to separate them. If you're anxious, that's something that meditation uh, helps with. But more importantly, helping you to see the difference and see that there's no reason to be anxious and anxiety doesn't help you, just to see more clearly the situation. That will help in so many ways. It will even, of course, help when you're in prison to make prison far more peaceful. When meditating, sometimes it triggers anxiety on how unrelaxed the breath seems. When focusing on the breath as an object of meditation, sometimes I notice I am breathing from the top of the chest rather than the stomach, and this also happens. What should I do? So the anxiety here sort of comes from, again, not seeing the three characteristics or seeing them, but um, rejecting them. So. The well, and yeah, and not seeing them because the reason why there's lack of relaxation is because of the mind's need to control, the mind's sense of an ability to control, and so there's pressure, there's tension and stress based on the fact that things are not amenable to our control, and so we suffer because of that. Um, that's just the state that you're going to be in the beginning, and what it takes is patience and persistence and a new perspective the the openness to a new perspective where you are no longer trying to control things to to rather than trying to fix your problems right what should i do is the sort of thing someone who is trying to fix things will ask and that's not the attitude that's the attitude you want to move away from you the question you should be asking is not what should i do um, maybe you can ask, what does it mean? Because that's what you want to understand. That's where you want to go. The the conclusion will be an understanding of, of what it means. What does it mean? It means that reality is impermanent, so unpredictable, uh, unsatisfying, so you'd see this suffering because of clinging, and non-self, so not under your control. You can't force your uh, breath to be this way or that way. So try and just be present with it and get a sense of what it means. Not not intellectually. I wouldn't actually worry about too much about what it means. I'm just trying to say that's what's going to happen. You're going to have a better grasp on uh, the way it works and the way it doesn't work. And you'll stop trying to make it work the way it doesn't work. So you'll stop fighting with it, stop trying to fix it or control it or that sort of thing. But you can't control, you can't force yourself not to force. 
So you just have to watch and learn. That's all you're doing. That's all we're doing. It's the biggest mistake that meditators make in the beginning that they eventually work out. But the biggest mistake is, what's next? What do I do? And there is no next. All you're doing is watching, learning, becoming more familiar with reality. And that's the perspective you need. Just keep watching. Until we've crossed the hour, there are two more questions in the top tier. Do you have time to answer more? Yeah. Okay, thank you. How do we deal with making choices such as choosing clothing, meals, work, after seeing the three characteristics? Beyond wholesomeness, what do we base our choices on when preferences fall away? Well, you're talking about an arahant. So what does an arahant do? Not much. You know, arahants sometimes just die. They just pass away because they have no choice. Um, if they're not a monk, that's supposed to be what happens, is they just pass away, they just let go. But that's an arahant. I mean, it's so far removed from, from you, probably. I mean, I don't know you, so I'm assuming if you're statistically average, well, maybe that's not fair because asking this sort of question doesn't make you statistically average. So, so far removed from, from well, still probably from you, even if you are asking this question. So, like a Sotapanna, a Sakadagami, an Anagami, they all still have some sort of agenda. For an Anagami, it's almost nothing, but there still is... Um, a sort of a sense to what they do and a, a, a sense of becoming you know, that will lead them to be reborn in this in the Suddhavasa, the high Brahma realms. But a Sotapanna can still get married, they can still have children, they can they still of course have desires and aversions. And those are mostly what cause us to make choices. For an Arahant, um so one of the things, and it's what I'm not mentioning, the big thing that I'm not mentioning is doing things out of wisdom and doing things out of understanding. So the wisdom of, well, let's say an arahant, um, causes them to do and say the right thing at the right time. It's just clarity. And it's just um, because of their situation. They are natural. It's like, why does a stone make a noise when you, when you drop it on another stone. That's just the nature of the stone. So why does an arahant eat? Well, it's just the nature of a human being. Why does an arahant breathe? Why does an arahant speak? Why do they walk? Why do they talk? It's like the reason why a stone makes noise when you drop it. It's just natural. And of course, a human being is far more complicated than a stone, but... That's the idea, is an arahant has returned to nature. They are just very natural. And their body and their mind work in a very natural and peaceful and harmonious way. They don't suddenly become zombies. That's It's nothing could be farther from the truth. They're suddenly free from being a zombie. They have clarity and freedom. How can I deal with frightening experiences which come up with intense meditation and rapture, making me resistant in my meditation in order to not experience those things again? So there's no such thing as a frightening experience. You hear me say this a lot, this sort of thing a lot. The experiences are one thing and the fear is another, and they are not related. It's just out of delusion and ignorance and misperception that we give rise to such reactions fear of the unknown, that sort of thing. It's just a, a a reaction. And so you change that. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate or if you're doing meditation in our tradition. You could maybe think about doing the at-home course if you haven't done that. But uh, you would note afraid, afraid. And you would also note the experiences. Sometimes there can be a, um, a delusion about them giving them greater significance, like these things seem special. 
And that's based on an idea that special things should happen in meditation. The truth is, I hate to break it to you, they're not that special. They're kind of mundane, even though they can be extremely powerful and seem just like, oh my gosh, this is something incredible. It's actually not. It's still impermanent suffering and non-self. And so it's something you should just note. It's like intense meditation that doesn't even say anything. There's no such thing as intense meditation. There's intense feelings. You might have intense focus, maybe uh, a sense of intensity, and that would just you could just note feeling, maybe or the rapture. You could also note feeling. You know, they don't they don't make you resistant. Um, that's just how you react and how you interpret them. So try and see them as much more the much more banal and mundane things that they actually are, and they come and they go just like everything else. That's a better perspective. I mean, that perspective in and of itself reduces the, the power that they have over you. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we were prepared to ask today. Okay. Well, thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris, for your help, and Jim for your help. Of course. Have a good week, everyone. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.